Support for Need to Know comes from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovation in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. Learn more at Carnegie.org. Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Wilson Center, a podcast for policymakers available to everyone. Always informative, nonpartisan, and relevant, we go beyond the headlines to understand the trend lines in foreign policy. Welcome back to another episode of Need to Know. I'm your host, John Molesky. In this episode, we're going to talk about a subject that has far-ranging implications for every nation on the planet, and really when it comes down to it, for just about every individual on planet Earth. And in the shadow of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the ongoing impacts of climate change, an always urgent subject is perhaps more important than ever. Well, I've kept you in suspense long enough, and by now many of you may have figured out that the topic we'll be discussing today is energy security. And today's guest is someone who's been on the energy beat in one way or another for decades. He is the Wilson Center's Vice President for Strategy and New Initiatives and serves as a senior advisor to the Center's Mexico Institute. Say hello to Duncan Wood. Hi, Duncan. Hi, good afternoon. How are you? I'm, I'm well. Great to see you and great to have you on the program. Uh, so I thought we could start with a definition, uh, a definition of energy security. What are we talking about? So I think the, the, the best definition I've come across is from the, the IEA, the International Energy Agency. And they define energy security as the uninterrupted availability of energy sources at an affordable price. And that uh, I think that speaks to you know, several of the most important elements of this is that we know that in the modern economy, we need to have access to energy at all times. That nightmare scenario, when you go home, you open the fridge and the light doesn't come on. Mm -hmm. Imagine what we do. Um, so uninterrupted in that sense. Um, but the affordable price thing, which is something that we're all experiencing today in this era of high inflation, um, is that you know our electricity bills are sometimes really unaffordable. And so if you can't afford to pay for energy, then you may as well just not, uh, may as well just not have access to it. So it's the same kind of thing. If, if energy costs too much, or if it's just simply not available, that's gonna interrupt your potential for economic development or just having an acceptable lifestyle. Uh, and that's something that we talk about you know, at the level of the average consumer, the residential consumer, the average citizen. But of course, this applies to nations as well. And so if a nation is cut off from energy, then its economy will fall apart, will stagnate. If an, energy, if an economy doesn't have access to affordable energy, then it's going to have real problem. And those two A's, availability and affordability, are two of the most important aspects of it. But there are two other A's that I think I'd like to throw in here. The first one is accessibility. In other words, mm -hmm. is it accessible to all of the actors who are going to need it? So that's closely connected to availability but also acceptability in the sense of, is this a kind of energy or, or does it come from a source that we are going to accept as a society? In other words, does it come from a country that we consider to be a friend or an enemy? And does it come from a source that we consider to be acceptable given our own social, um, environmental uh, preferences of today? And so that leads us into the whole conversation about the connection between energy security and climate change. Given all those complexities, uh, another uh, potential complicator is, is it even possible for any individual nation to be 100% independently energy secure? Or are we all tied together? 
Well, I think that traditionally we would have said that the high level of interdependence which exists between countries in the modern economy would, would suggest that no one country can be energy, um, uh, could have pure energy security. However, we do have examples of countries which are energy independent, of course. Those countries which either have massive amounts of oil reserves and natural gas, and so they can produce as much energy as they want and then export it as well. But perhaps the better examples in today's context are uh, countries that produce enormous amounts of renewable energy, either from geothermal sources or from wind, solar, and therefore are in fact not just energy independent, but they produce everything internally. And in fact, you can't, it's very difficult to interrupt that. Now, of course, you could, you could bomb their wind turbines or their, their solar parks. But in mm -hmm. fact, that, that's, that's, we have some examples of countries which really have achieved that level of independence. So I would say that they are energy secure at this point in time. But one of the most important approaches traditionally to energy security has been diversity of supply. In other words, you diversify your energy matrix, all the different places from which you get your energy, as much as possible. That means that you don't depend on any one country or a small number of countries for your energy imports. You don't uh, depend on any one source, oil, gas, coal, for example. You diversify as much as possible so that if one of the legs falls off, you still have all the other legs of your energy table, as it were. Yeah. And thank you that for making that important distinction between the concept of independence and security, because uh, we're not talking about the same thing there. The, and it, Duncan, is there anything the equivalent of the kind of global report cards we see on all kinds of things, press freedoms or, uh, you know, is there is there a global report card on energy security that takes a look across the nations of the world? Um, so there are various organizations that actually um, examine uh, the uh, the energy matrix of different countries. Um, so the IEA that I mentioned earlier on, also the EIA, the Energy Information uh, Age, uh, Administration here in the United States, um, produces those kinds of surveys. And it's quite easy to determine the vulnerabilities or the, the energy insecurity of countries. Uh, and so those are very valuable sources of information where you can begin to evaluate how um, energy secure a country is. But this is a, um, these are shifting goalposts over time because of that uh, point that I mentioned earlier on, the acceptability of a source of energy. So whereas we might have said that the European countries had high levels of energy security prior to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, all of a sudden it appeared, it, it emerged that they were highly energy insecure. Natural gas flowing from Russia through pipelines, through the Nord Stream pipelines, was considered to be a secure form of energy. It turns out it wasn't. Uh, and, and so whilst they had you know, a lot of supply coming in at a reasonable price, and it seemed to be highly dependable, it turns out it wasn't. And that could be true of other sources as well for entirely different reasons. Let's imagine that, for example, the hurricane season in the Gulf of Mexico gets a lot worse as climate change heats up all of a sudden, extracting oil from the Gulf of Mexico is going to become more difficult and more costly, and that may cause interruptions of supply. So this is, as I say, it, it, these are circumstances that will change. These are variables that will change with time. So what you just described is you, you can't have security when you're relying on something that's unreliable. And you, you just gave us two examples, unreliable sources or trading partners, and then potentially unreliable uh, raw materials, where they're coming from and, and how secure that supply is. 
Uh, that's absolutely right. And so uh, a lot of policymakers over the years who have looked at the, uh, the challenges of energy security, and, and let's just begin uh, with the 1970s here in the United States, where all of a sudden our over-dependence on Middle Eastern oil uh, was exposed um, thanks to conflicts over there, um, the Yom Kippur War, and then, of course, the, uh, uh, the Iranian Revolution. Uh, and you know, supply was constricted and prices went through the roof. And all of a sudden, it turned out the United States was not energy secure. Um, beginning at that, uh, at that point, the United States began to look at its dependence on certain foreign suppliers and say, we need to, in the long term to reduce our dependence on the less, secure, the less dependable suppliers and increase our, our imports from countries which are more dependable. So, for example, Canada, Mexico, for example. At the same time, and thanks largely to technological innovation, um, in the early part of this century, we saw the shale uh, gas and tight oil revolutions taking place, which allowed the United States to dramatically inc increase its uh, production of oil and natural gas on U.S. territory. And at the current time, what we're looking at is we're looking at the way in which the United States and its allies and partners can increase their generation of electricity from renewable sources so that even if oil, uh, global oil prices go up to a point where uh, oil prices are no longer affordable or accessible, then all of a sudden we have other sources that we can turn to that can help to diversify the supply and therefore increase energy security. The, the, you described the situation in, in much of Europe in the wake of Ukraine where you thought you had a reliable source of energy and you're finding out differently. What, what about the situation here in the United States? How uh, secure is the U.S. scenario? Um, I, I would say that the United States is, is, is truly blessed uh, in the sense that it has enormous reserves of oil and gas has managed to develop a system of production depending overwhelmingly on the private sector, whereby innovation and, and efficiency are, uh, are placed at a premium. Uh, and that means that we have been able to extract huge amounts of energy from within U.S. territory. I think we're also seeing investments by the U.S. government uh, in new technologies, the Department of Energy, has uh, significant funds every year that are dedicated to innovation in energy, not just in renewable energy, but also in traditional sources of energy and in nuclear power as well. And so the diversification of the United States energy matrix has really inc increased energy security over time. That's not to say that we aren't affected by global trends. As I, as I mentioned earlier on, the current inflationary era for energy prices is as a result not of what's happening here in the United States, but what's happening across the world. And so as long as you have that globally interconnected um, system for, uh, for energy and for energy pricing in particular, then I think it's very difficult for any one country to say that it is totally energy secure. So uh, Russia clearly has contributed to global insecurity with its invasion of, of Ukraine. Uh, traditionally, OPEC has been the major player that we talk about in, in these terms. What has what its historic role been? Is it, is it a source of stability or instability? Security or insecurity? It's a really, really good question. And I think it, the answer to that depends on you know, whether you are a producing nation or, a, uh, or, a, or an importing nation. Um, you know, if you are a, an exporter of, of oil, then it has provided a significant amount of stability for you in terms of prices 
over time. Although there was a long period in the 1990s and early part of the 21st century where OPEC cooperation really broke down and that critical role of the swing producer in the and the, the main reserve country of Saudi Arabia wasn't nearly as important as it had been before. And so that's where we saw, you know, collapse in oil prices um, and uh, a lot of producing countries actually not being able to um, get enough money for their national budgets from their energy production. But those were golden days for the consumers. So, um, you know, if you're a consuming country, if you are an importing country of, uh, of oil and, uh, and gas, but particularly for oil, OPEC has uh, played largely a negative role in terms of uh, maintaining stability. If you're a producing, exporting country, it's been a positive one. But instead of talking about uh, just countries, let's think about the, uh, the actors who produce it themselves, because we can't forget that in much of the world, it's the private sector that actually produces oil and, uh, and, and exports oil. And so for those countries, sorry, those companies that are pr producing um, oil, then keeping higher prices actually is very much in their interest. And that's a significant part of the economy. But if prices get too high, we do begin to see a reaction from uh, society, from government and from the economy, whereby they turn to alternative sources. And again, I will turn back to the 1970s for an example. In that first OPEC oil crisis uh, in, in the 1970s, we saw that that was the first real push towards renewable energy here in the United States. And periodically, as oil prices and natural gas prices have risen exponentially, that's when we've seen extra investments and more of the economy turning to renewable sources. And those multinational corporations that you talk about or your reference, they've largely been dealing in fossil fuels. So I want to ask you as we look forward, uh, in, in the context of those three A's that you introduced, availability, accessibility, acceptability, what are the trend lines look like as it relates to the global reliance on fossil fuels and the emergence of new technologies? Well, I don't want to be too uh, Pollyanna-ish in, in this regard. A lot of people would say that, listen, if you can cover your territory with wind turbines or with solar panels, you will achieve energy security. Uh, and you'll avoid all of the pitfalls that we had from the traditional hydrocarbons era. The fact is, is that for the renewable energy revolution to be successful, and as we've discussed um, in various videos with you before, John, we need to have access to certain critical minerals. And those critical minerals are not uh, evenly distributed around the world. So lithium, for example, rare earth uh, elements uh, of a cobalt, um, ma uh, manganese, etc. All of these are key minerals that you need to make turbines work, electric vehicles work, etc. And, and to have access to those is just another dimension of what, how we would redefine energy security today. We need to have access to those critical minerals, those, those key metals that we need for the renewable energy transition. And unless we can secure access to them, then it's going to be very difficult to say that we actually do have energy security. Hmm. And I'm writing notes as you're speaking, Duncan, because I'm seeing sort of a circle of factors, good governance, uh, reliable technology, and healthy economies. Uh, if all those things aren't sort of working, they're going to have a huge impact on energy security. I think it's very important to understand the energy sector not just as a standalone part of the economy, but really as part of the plumbing 
which underlies the rest of the economy and makes the productive economy um, possible. You know, if you don't have um, uninterrupted supply, if you don't have uh, affordable sources of energy, if it doesn't come from acceptable sources, if you can't get energy into the hands of those people who need it, then it's very difficult for the economy to actually work. You know, if consumers don't have access to, um, uh, to affordable energy, then it's going to dramatically impact their spending in other areas. So we can see you know, a, a recessionary tendency. If companies don't have access to affordable energy or uninterrupted supply, then they won't be able to compete internationally. And that's one of the most important ways I have uh, uh, begun to, to think about the energy sector um, over the past 10, 20 years, is that kind of like the financial system. If the energy sector isn't healthy, if the financial sector isn't healthy and playing its role of being part of that that plumbing beneath the productive economy, then the productive economy simply cannot succeed. Duncan, before we leave, I want to ask you a question. Uh, you know, and I want to tell our listeners and viewers about your work at the center and how they should really tap into it. And you can do that at wilsoncenter.org. Uh, Duncan mentioned uh, uh, critical minerals. Uh, he's done groundbreaking work on supply chains, all kinds of important topics that tend to not dominate the headlines, but certainly if they don't work can dominate the quality of your life. Uh, and Duncan, along those lines, the people you've been engaged with, those who are most invested in energy extraction and, and energy security and all the things we've been talking about, where are their heads these days? Are they optimistic about the future? Are people worried? You know, it's kind of like these surveys we take of the American people or any nation. Are you optimistic about where the, the country is headed? Uh, what are the people that you're dealing with on a regular basis? Where are their heads at? I think we're in a period of rather dramatic change partly because of geopolitical events, partly because of climate change, partly because of technological innovation. And that instability and uncertainty creates two different tendencies. Those people who have vested interest in the status quo feel rather insecure about the future. So they're worried about what these changes are gonna mean. Those people who are actually part of that, that new economy or that new energy sector are actually very optimistic about the future. And I think that's why it's so important that we begin to focus on these issues here at the Wilson Center. And you've given me the perfect segue, John, to talk about um, the work that we'll be conducting uh, through the Office of New Initiatives um, and through our uh, WABA Institute on uh, Strategic Competition this year, where we're looking at the politics and geopolitics of the energy transition where we're looking at the way in which, you know, who are going to be the winners and the losers, what is going to be the impact upon different actors, different countries in the global system um, as a result of the transition away from hydrocarbons and more to renewable uh, energy sources. So that move towards sustainability. One question, of course, is how do we actually make that happen? But the other one is, you know, what do we do with those traditional energy producers? What is their role in the energy transition? How do they make a transition themselves to that new energy sector? So I think that we're going to see a lot of conversation about this, um, not just uh, in academia, in think tanks, in civil society, but up on Capitol Hill as well. This is one of the most crucial challenges facing the United States and other countries in the 21st century. Um, the steps that were taken last year um, through the Inflation Reduction Act, um, well, I think, are significant. Um, they've they've uh, succeeded in moving the conversation forward and resulting in some uh, very important new investments. 
But I think it's a conversation that we're going to have to keep having. And that's why we want to bring together stakeholders from all different uh, sides to talk about how this energy transition is going to impact upon the, the role of the United States and the place of the United States in the global system. Well, thank you, Duncan. That is all terrific stuff. And we'll look forward to that new program. And we'll, I'm sure we'll cover it. I will guarantee our listeners that we will talk about it when it officially launches. And, and you know, Duncan, I just want to say is I, before I came to the Wilson Center in my time here, one of the things I've always admired is that not just a focus on headlines, but a focus on trend lines. And nobody's better at that than you. Thank you for your ongoing visionary work. I think it's fair to call it that. I know you're a modest man, so that might be a lot to handle, but uh, I think that's a fair description of the work you've been doing. John, you are overly kind, but I appreciate it. Well, well, thanks again. And thanks to all of you who joined us for this edition of Need to Know. Visit wilsoncenter.org for information on this podcast and uh, many more, including America's 360. I'll plug one that Duncan and I co-created uh, over a year ago, and it's still running strong. And I also want to uh, be, uh, tell you to be sure to continue to follow Duncan's work at wilsoncenter.org. And uh, that's all for this episode of Need to Know. We hope you enjoyed it. Until next time, I thank you for your time and interest. See you next time.